Well, good morning, friends, and welcome to this Wednesday edition of Real Talk on this December 2nd. Very much looking forward to what we have coming up today. We're going to be talking about innovation. We're going to be talking about city building. We're going to be talking about what a post-COVID sustainable energy economy looks like here in Western Canada and across the country. The new CEO of Innovate Edmonton will be joining us in just a moment. Newly minted, just getting started uh, and we're grateful uh, that Catherine Warren is making some time to talk to us today. Also, when we talk about innovation, when we talk about disruption, am I using all the key phrases? Am, am I on my way to securing a keynote speech somewhere? Uh, in all seriousness, though, disruption is all anybody's talking about these days because it's happening all around us. And the disruptors are seeing great success, including the CEO of the company, the local company that proudly is the presenting sponsor of this program, we will be meeting the CEO of the Bitcoin well today. You're going, what, what, what? Bitcoin Solutions? Wasn't it Bitcoin Solutions? They've rebranded. They've just rolled out a brand new, uh, I mean, it, it, it looks great. You can check out the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com if you want to see it. But we're going to ask CEO Adam O'Brien what that's all about. Why are they rebranding? They're about to go public. It's an exciting time for them, and obviously an exciting time for us to have them on board. They've got Bitcoin ATMs uh, in and around Edmonton, including uh, eight of the ten Cafe Remedy locations. Everybody loves those. They're Bitcoin ATMs also across Canada, but they're proudly headquartered right here in Edmonton, Alberta. Just like us, uh, they've still got their same goal of making Bitcoin more accessible and easy. Just a new name. We'll talk to Adam O'Brien about Bitcoin while coming up just after our 9.30 headlines. Uh, with regards to Real Talk today... Sam, I'd say it's a good time to maybe get it going. Real Talk starts now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. So we'll talk some politics today. We're going to get into Alberta's new drunk driving legislation as well. We want to hit that from a couple of angles. We're going to talk to a pretty prominent criminal defender, Kyla Lee. We'll uh, dial in from Vancouver coming up uh, around 930 Mountain Time this morning, coming up in just about an hour's time. And we're also going to talk to Sherry Arsenault from Families for Justice. Sherry, the Arsenault family and others close to them experienced th the worst type of loss imaginable uh, when three young men were taken suddenly uh, involved in a motor vehicle accident, a horrific one at that, uh, with a drunk driver behind the wheel. Sherry speaks from a horrific and a tragic firsthand experience, but her life is committed to impacting impaired driving legislation. Sherry Arsenault will be joining us around 945 Mountain today. You won't want to miss that conversation. She's been working with the provincial government, both the New Democrats and the United Conservatives, to bring into place or to ensure that Alberta has what she believes will be effective and meaningful drunk driving legislation, impaired driving legislation. We'll ask Sherry if the announcement yesterday uh, indicates that her work is actually accomplishing what she's endeavoring to accomplish. That's coming up in about an hour and 15 minutes. But the, the big news, making news in Alberta right now in business circles is the recruitment and the announcement of Catherine Warren as the new chief executive officer of Innovate Edmonton. She's been kind enough to make time for us uh, this morning. Catherine Warren, welcome to Real Talk. And, uh, and let me say, welcome to Edmonton. 
I am so happy to be joining you this morning. So I've got about a million questions for you, and I'm and I'm curious to pick your brain. I mean, uh, we we could run through your CV. My intro could be ten minutes long. Uh, I will note that I want to talk to you about a, a bachelor of science degree in physics you got way back when in Oregon, uh, focusing on climate change. You're a graduate. You have a grad degree from Columbia School of Journalism. I want to talk to you about that as well. But the big conversations we want to have right now uh, center around what innovate Edmund mandate will be and, and, and what it means to prepare a city, a, a municipality, a jurisdiction for, for the next generation economy. Why don't we pave uh, sort of a foundation here? Why don't we lay a foundation for the conversation and help people understand about Innovate Edmonton? Because the last a lot of people would have heard was, was essentially the blowing up of Edmonton Economic Development Corporation, the migration of some of those employees to Edmonton Tourism. Are you literally right now uh, as you start building, are you a team of one? I am flying solo with an amazing independent volunteer board and uh, the communities of support all around me. And I met a number of them on Slack yesterday, my first day. Okay, so you're coming in from Vancouver, correct? M- most recently, you, you were working uh, as CEO of Vancouver Economic Commission. Uh, how, what do you bring from from Vancouver, so to speak, to here? What can you apply from what you learned there? And, and, and what does Edmonton present to you as a unique challenge as you get started? Mm-hmm. Well, um, what I think I bring from Vancouver and really my whole career is working with entrepreneurs and with startups and with innovators in the traditional economy. I spent many, many years working to transform the broadcasting industry um, to the digital arena. And, um, you know, here in Vancouver, we have some strengths in areas that I think um, will be familiar to Edmontonians. So um, certainly some AI strengths, but nothing like what Edmonton has, um, working clean energy and green buildings and in the impact economy. And so those are some um, I hope transferable skills and sectors that I can bring across. And then of course, I'm very psyched to learn about everything that Edmonton has to offer um, locally and to offer the world. What is it that, that sets a city apart in your experience, what you've seen around the world or, or, or maybe even what you've manifested yourself in Vancouver and in through some of your other professional endeavors? What is it that determines a city's readiness for success when it comes to things like developing tech or developing industries, attracting big investments. I know that that's something that you've been very proud of through your career. How, how does a city set the table for that? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things the city can do is be a client for innovation. So the city itself um, can be a leader and a role model in um, soliciting bids from startups and from innovators so that those new companies can get their first big pilot projects underway with a flagship client, like a city or an airport or a transit system or a crown corp. Um, so, so that's one kind of infrastructure partnership that, that cities can offer. Um, secondly, Cities are great crucibles for strange bedfellows. So where um, creativity and technology come together, for example, um, in arts and culture and in digital media. Um, And then 
I think um, tackling the big problems. So cities are where it's at when it comes to um, climate resiliency. For example, last year I had the privilege to attend um, the C40 Mayor's Climate Summit. And you, know, you can really see that um, it's at the municipal level where change is made and where innovation happens. How much of your job relies on uh, political cooperation and, and how much of your job or efforts can be hampered by political interference? In other words, talking about climate resiliency uh, indicates an awareness of where the world is going and probably the proper focus when it, when it comes to preparing an economy and a population for, for the next generation. Uh, at the same time, climate resiliency, for whatever reason, and everybody watching and listening right now knows exactly what I'm talking about. I don't have to waste my time, Catherine, nor your time uh, to really develop the theory of what I'm getting at here. It's, it's used, it's politicized uh, almost in a way to suggest that, that you're attacking the bedrock of what has been Alberta's biggest player uh, when it comes to our bottom line. H how do you pursue climate resiliency in this era of highly politicized dialogue? Well, far be it for me to start my second day punching anyone in the gut. So that is not how I mean to go on. But uh, what I mean by climate resiliency um, and clean energy um, and green tech these are, these are all things that are going to be very much a part of creating a sustainable Canada and a sustainable world. And I think um, Edmonton is really well positioned to pivot in this regard. And we want to live in a city and in an innovation economy where no workers are left behind, where no opportunities are left unchecked and not kind of ghettoize innovation in kind of the glamour bubble of tech, but make sure innovation is distributed fairly and people have the ability to contribute to the innovation economy and to the sustainable economy. The glamour bubble. I like that uh, because because you've exactly nailed down how I think some people perceive these conversations to go. Um, I only know this, Catherine, because I've, I've worked in talk radio for many years and I've fielded calls from people when, you know, we, we hear right now even Imperial Oil, you know, walking away, writing off, you know, about a billion dollars in assets in the Alberta oil sands. It means 200, uh, 200 jobs lost. And, and you might look at the numbers and say, well, 200, that's nothing compared to the 6,500 in this story or the 8,000 jobs lost in this story or the 1,500 jobs, but it's still 200 people that now enter a job market that, that's been decimated, quite frankly. And, and I'm not here to kill anybody's spirits, the point I'm getting at is, well, talk to a pipeliner or you talk to somebody that's worked on the rigs or you talk to somebody that's had run a hotshot service or, or anything like that in Alberta. And I find that these, these people that have been incredible entrepreneurs through the years that bring a lot of experience to the table that I'm sure are teachable uh, oftentimes, uh, at least at a personal level, underestimate their ability to pivot. And I think that there's a certain cynicism that probably exacerbates them underestimating themselves. I mean, I mean, what's your message? How do you change people's minds in that regard that, that there is opportunity for them in a new economy? How, where does that work begin? Mm -hmm. well, well, first of all, I want to acknowledge that everybody has been hit by the pandemic. This has been a really tough time. 
And I'm conscious that the innovation community as well as traditional sectors are under tremendous pressure, um, tremendous pressure to conduct business, to respond to urgent global needs and to, to pivot. Um, and, and so I also feel incredibly fortunate to have um, found this wonderful job at this um, really key time of um, transformation. Um, but, you know, kind of back to your, the heart of your question, um, this, this really needs to be taught at a very early level. I think in education, as early as elementary education, you know, kids are streamed to think that they can have kind of an old school job or a job in video games, but they don't really hear the message that a lot of really cool stuff happens in the traditional economy. And there's a ton of room for innovating and cross-pollinating between, let's say, the digital and traditional economies. And so, um, you know, when, when I say that part of the vision is that no one will be left behind in Edmonton's innovation economy, it's to really reinforce that that upskilling and training and access to mentorship from other sectors needs to be available in order for everyone to participate. And the other thing that's really key is accessibility to um, uh, digital technologies and connectivity. And so making sure that at, at every age and at every stage, people have really good broadband and the equipment that they need to participate and to re-educate. If you're just uh, tuning in, if you're uh, streaming this audio live on Mixler right now, you're hearing from Catherine Warren just announced as the new chief executive officer of Innovate Edmonton, the city of Edmonton, uh, earmarking $5 million in, in funding for this. Uh, Catherine, so, so people will be trying to sort of stay up to speed on where this is all going. Obviously, a lot of the people downtown know exactly what your mandate will be, and they know the backstory. For those that don't, we've we've had Edmonton Economic Development Corporation, right? You've, you you've got uh, you know Innovate Edmonton now. Um, you've got Edmonton Global. You've got the Edmonton Metro Region Board and others. And you could forgive someone that's having a difficult time staying on top of it all, or or sorting through them and and trying to understand what each individual mandate is. How do you ensure that there's no overlap and and how do Edmontons ensure that Edmontonians ensure that they're getting bang for their buck there? That this is going to be a successful venture. What do you know about the role that that Innovate Edmonton will play in that entire landscape? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, well, first of all, I see our role as a convener and as a catalyst. And, you know, as you've described it and as Edmontonians know, um, maybe what we have is more of a mosaic. Or, or a patchwork um, when what we really need is a quilt. Like we need all this stuff drawn together. And I, I'm a maker, so I love these hands-on analogies. Um, and, and I think it's gonna take, um, you know, me working with our board and the community in the first 90 days to come up with a critical path to really understand um, which organizations could be working more closely together, how they're already working together, um, where there might be economies of scale, for example, in administration, finance, and HR, so that um, the taxpayers can get more bang for their buck as well. 
What was it? That, let, let me ask you just personally. Um, uh, I don't know if you're, are you in your home right now? It looks incredible, by the way. This is in Vancouver, right? Thank you, Thank you so much. It's actually in North Vancouver. North Vancouver, even better. Uh, uh, just an absolutely remarkable and beautiful and wonderful uh, pocket of the country. So is Edmonton. Uh, but you've been doing big things out in Vancouver. And, and quite frankly, you're a hot commodity. Uh, so what was it that drew you to this? I'm sure that you could have stayed there. I'm sure you could have gone somewhere else. What was it uh, when Nassim Bashir and, and, and the board reached out to you and, and, and made you this offer? What was it that made you say, yeah, I'm going to pick up my life and I'm going to move to Alberta? Well, first of all, it was a long process to even get the offer um, and a competitive process. And I had been um, undertaking an international job search at an incredibly delicate time, as you can imagine, um, with the pandemic. And um, so I, I really was approaching things like I, I wanted um, a job with a higher purpose. I wanted a role where I could really make a difference using my skills of um, uh, finance, um, fundraising, uh, mentorship and growth for, for companies of different sizes and international uh, development, kind of tying things at the local and global level. And so um, when, when I saw this job and I read the terms of reference, I just got incredibly excited. And um, I, I don't know if this is a good analogy, but I've lived in um, a, a variety of cities, um, including uh, Portland and Austin, and I've always thought of Edmonton as kind of uh, analogous to, to those cities. So I'm, I, I'm expecting to um, be, be surprised, but I'm also expecting to really feel that community sense. I've got a big Make Edmonton Weird sticker up, right, where I throw darts at my house. So we've got at least one thing in common uh, from a potential branding angle with Austin, that's for sure. Uh, we're talking to Catherine Warren, who's just joining us, uh, the new CEO of, of Innovate Edmonton. Uh, by the way, I, I'm watching our live YouTube chat right now. The people that are that are watching uh, live right now streaming on YouTube and, and the former CEO, by the way, of, of EEDC is chiming in. Brad Ferguson welcomes you to Edmonton, says he looks forward to your leadership. Uh, there's hey, a there's a great question here from Eric. Uh, Eric's watching and, and he wonders, Catherine, how do you appease the folks, uh, quote, in between tech and traditional industry while facilitating their disruption. Eric says, as an example, the cattle lobby gets in the way of things like future food sources, like cellular agriculture. What a great question from Eric watching this morning. That is a great question. And I saw um, cellular chicken in the headlines in the guardian last night. So um, we're all about cellular food today, I guess. Um, well, first of all, I'm not an appeaser, so that's not really in my nature, but, but maybe um, uh, a bit of a broker. So, um, you know, taking the best of, of both worlds and, and kind of bringing that together. Um, you know, I, I also come from a province that's a, a resource economy, and we've had our own, um, you know, turf wars and battlegrounds between the... Um, uh, digital and traditional economies. So, um, you know, I, I think I have a, a bit of a backbone in that regard, but I, I also have a, a listening approach. And I think it's, it's really key to get um, companies at different um, areas of, 
of the province and different areas of growth working together um, and, and then finding what we can um, uh, find something unique about Edmonton that will distinguish and position the city on a world stage. And there's so much there, um, you know, in addition to cellular agriculture and ag tech, there's of course health tech and everything that's going on with um, pandemic recovery. Um, there's the, the clean and renewable sector. And of course, AI where Edmonton just has tremendous bench strength. And then a shout out to the impact economy in Edmonton too, which is growing in areas where people want to deliver back on um, metrics like people, planet, and profit. I want to circle back on that. You, you've referenced the impact economy a couple of times, plus some, some great questions coming in from our viewers and, and those that are tuned in as well, taking Mixler with them on the go on their morning commute or whatever the case may be. Uh, Catherine Warren, hang tight for one second. Wanted to let you know when we're talking, I mean, what a great opportunity we have right now to check in with Catherine on Edmonton-grown business, on Alberta-grown business that's seen big success and we're going to talk to another one of them in about 10 minutes when Adam O'Brien joins us uh, from the Bitcoin well. But, but I want to recognize Local Waste. This is a, a company that's uh, locally grown, locally owned, locally operated, employing local people. And they've been doing that for a quarter century already. 25 years of experience going up against the big, faceless, multinational garbage guys. Local Waste is making it happen here, and they want your business at localwaste.ca or by calling them on a first-name basis, Chris and Lauren, at 780-242-9746. Our thanks to Local Waste for their generous sponsorship of Real Talk. Catherine Warren, our guest, uh, the newly minted CEO at Innovate Edmonton. Uh, Catherine, I want to go back to our YouTube stream. Uh, Mark watches from Utah every single morning. Really love this. And, and he says, you know, the best way uh, for innovation and startups to flourish is to have a partnership between startups, post-secondaries, municipalities, the provincial government, and capital financing, VCs, and banks. Do you concur? And if so, how do you make that happen? How have you made it happen in past? And what do you intend to do here? You know, I so concur with that. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to championing that in Edmonton with other people who, who share that vision. Um, you, you mentioned my role as CEO of the Vancouver Economic Commission, but prior to that, I was the CEO of Canada's innovation district called the Center for Digital Media, which is kind of a hotbed for academia and industry in creative technologies. So game studios, art galleries, um, graduate programs, uh, transit hub, greenways, bikeways, walkways, and, and really like a, a neighborhood where innovation is meant to happen. And, um, you know, cer certainly, um, you know, just walking through the, the campus or through the district um, that that's where ideas happen and that's where relationships are built. And so I, I completely agree. It's about bringing these groups together. Um, it's about uniting people around common cause and common purpose. 
and then tackling some of the world's biggest problems and thereby gaining access to international markets. You've referenced, uh, Catherine, and it's no secret, uh, Edmonton's uh, prominence, I think, on the, on the global stage when it comes to AI and some of the amazing work that's being done here, not not as a leader in Canada, but but literally as a leader around the world. I mean, I've heard uh, talk to people that, that know more than me, uh, you know, Cam Linky and, and that crew here in Edmonton that, that, have, that have said, with humility appropriately, uh, in true Canadian fashion, that Edmonton is probably a top three or a top five center when it comes to uh, what they're doing, what people are doing here and the talent that they're attracting in AI. Uh, let me ask somewhat of a biting question as we all look in the mirror. Why has Edmonton or, or, or what stood in, why have we done such a lousy job of, uh, of, of sending that message to the world? Why does the world not think of Edmonton, Canada when it thinks of AI? Because the numbers are there. You know, I, I'm not actually sure that that's true. Just playing devil's advocate. Um, I'm playing uh, last devil's year, advocate. Right, <laughs> right around this time, um, I was uh, traveling with some colleagues from Consider Canada Cities Alliance. Um, Malcolm Bruce, who heads up Edmonton Global, is our board chair. And um, we were traveling together in Japan. And it was very clear that Edmonton's on the radar. Uh, Catherine joining us, uh, Catherine Warren, uh, as, as you know, if you're, or if you're just tuning in the new CEO of, uh, impact Edmonton, this, this impact economy, um, Catherine, if you need a second, you know, I know that we're live and there's like very few breaks. If you want to take a sip of your tea or water, that's totally fine. I get, it. but I wanted to ask you that this impact economy for people that are, that are wanting to learn more people that are wanting to position themselves. One of the most exciting messages. I mean, we receive messages. I'm getting them right now, uh, from people, young people, like people that are, that are either in university or college or post-secondary or just starting their first business. People that, that, you know, I mean, they're, they're not. You know, I, I would like to think of young people in their careers in their 40s, but that's just because I, I like to talk myself off the ledge every once in a while. But for the next generation, uh, for the for the 20-year-olds and the 22-year-olds that are going to see this, what's your advice to them, people that want to make an impact in this economy as you describe it? Sam, did we lose our audio? I think we might. We may have lost Catherine. We may have lost your audio, unfortunately, which uh, we're going to try okay. to troubleshoot this. Oh, we got you back. Yeah, I would say um, try and find a great mentor. Um, I would say learn to um, reach out to your professors and um, join groups of people that share your common values. Um, Sorry. No, I can tell your, your, your throat's giving you fits right now. Um, let me give you a second. I've been in this situation and it's a total nightmare because, because your, your throat's going to start to close up and here you are trying to get this message out to the next generation. Why don't we just do this? It's 8.58. I'm going to get to the headlines anyway. Let's talk again soon. Once you're here, once you've hit the ground running, once you start making a few key hires, once you start making some tangible progress and we can talk about where you're going to take this with Innovate Edmonton, I'd love to talk with you again, Catherine. And I look forward to that conversation. Thank you so much. You got it. That's Catherine Warren, uh, Chief Executive Officer of Innovate Edmonton. I have been there. You're doing a live interview and, and your throat just starts to go on you and it is the worst thing in the world. I'm going to knock on wood, Sam, uh, because we don't have commercial breaks to throw to that I'm not reading live. Uh, we, 
we don't have a newscast to throw to that an anchor will take over. And so if, if I find myself knock on wood in a position like that, I, she, she handled that admirably. I've been in that position before. Uh, I'm impressed with Catherine Warren. I mean, obviously, you're going to go, well, duh. Like, you know, she just got a pretty high-profile job after an extensive search and yada, yada, yada. Um, And I'm not here to just pump her tires, but she has an important job with an important mandate. And it sounds to me... Uh, like she knows what the hell she's talking about. I was really impressed with her. You can let me know what you think by checking out the hashtag real talk RJ. That's how you can talk to us here on the show. That's what we're monitoring along with our YouTube comments. And we, and we love uh, everybody that's tuned in watching live on YouTube. Plus we know our Mixler uh, audio, our Mixler community is massive. This is our audio streaming community. Um, I hate to give you this. I hate to. I hate to give you this information, but the fact of the matter is, the Mixler audience is is is. Uh, can you say dwarfing anymore? I think you can say dwarfing. Someone correct me if I can't say that anymore, and I'll eliminate it. But the Mixler audience is dwarfing our YouTube audience right now. Which you know what that says to me, Sam, is that people are taking the show on the go, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, at, at its core, we're doing a radio show, and we're doing a radio show with a really cool video component, and I'm working hard to get the visuals up here, but I mean, you're right, this is this this show is meant to be meant to be listened to on the road, this show is yeah. meant to be listened to walking your dog, it's meant, so it's meant to be listened to while you're, uh, you know, uh, making your morning breakfast. And you and know stuff. what I'm loving is that you, you'll see the audience of, of who's, and this is all, like, this is show number seven, right? Or no, show number eight, we're on show number eight. Show number eight. Um, uh, pretty cool, by the way, to see, um, uh, let, let me pump our tires for a second. Cause, cause you know, we pump, we're, we're not part of a corporate machine, so we got to pump our own tires. I'm pretty excited to see Podboard. you know, the Podboard 100, they, they have their big list in the United States, the hundred top podcasts, and they have a Canadian list as well. Uh, Podboard 100 tweeting this morning. It's starting to feel like groundhog day, six days consecutively, the most listened to podcast, the most listened to daily podcast in the country is Real Talk. Uh, and that's because of listeners and viewers like you. The point I wanted to make is that we've got our live streaming audience on YouTube. And then you see what happens to that YouTube link through the day. And, and it amplifies by about 10 times. Plus Mixler, plus the podcast. This community is formidable already, which is pretty exciting for us. It's, it's probably why I think advertisers are probably interested in supporting the show as well and we're really grateful that they're here with us one of them is Friesen Brothers who across their 14 and soon to be 15 Alberta locations when they open that beautiful South Edmonton store uh, just off Rabbit Hill Road it's like it's not a grocery store I mean they have groceries there but it's gonna trust me when you walk in there It'll be like the first time I walked into Friesen Brothers. It was like two years ago, two and a half years ago in Stony Plain. And I just went, what is this? It's far from your average grocery store. Unbelievable. Uh, in part because they employ Red Seal chefs. And so if you right now, you're thinking it's going to be a, a dialed down Christmas, two of you around the table or maybe six or seven or eight, depending on the size of your family. And you'd rather have somebody else handle the turkey and the fresh grown Alberta produce. You'd rather have somebody else quarterbacking that for you? Check out Friesen Brothers in your community across the province of Alberta. Proudly, Alberta-grown, Alberta-owned. At Friesen Brothers, they've got you covered. Uh, Sam, before we bring in a grand and great disruptor, this guy is really, really impressive, and you're going to see why. The CEO of Bitcoin Well, Adam O'Brien. Let's get to what's making news right now. Here's a look at the headlines, everybody.
Want to take a look at Alberta's COVID numbers uh, right now. Unfortunately, Sam, why don't we put those numbers up so people can take a look? Uh, this is striking. Alberta, this is not uh, averaged out per capita. This has uh, nothing to do with uh, cases per population. These are just the numbers. Alberta leading, leading Canada in active cases of COVID-19 with more than 16,500. Ontario with more than three times our population couple thousand behind and, and Quebec just behind there. So that's a perspective check of where Alberta stacks up uh, right now. Some tough news when it comes to Alberta's oil sands, Imperial Oil, joining Kinder Morgan, Total and others leaving the oil sands, announcing that it intends to write off about a billion, $200 million in assets, oil sands assets. It could lead, probably will lead to about 200 job losses. Imperial Oil says the assets are non-producing, underdeveloped, uh, doesn't expect any future cash expenditures related to the impairment charge. Imperial, by way of statement yesterday, saying this won't include the high-value liquid-rich portion of the company's unconventional asset portfolio, says it still plans to develop that. Canadian Hollywood star, the star of Juno, Elliot Page, made his debut yesterday. The Halifax native coming out with a statement, quote, I am trans. My name is Elliot I feel lucky to be writing this. Elliot went on to write, I'm also scared of the invasiveness, the hate, the jokes, and of violence. Uh, without question, Elliot Page uh, immediately becomes a leader and a high-profile face of the transgender community globally. And as Jimmy Kimmel put it last night, Pardon Palooza is underway. Uh, last week, you know, President Donald Trump pardoned his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, who lied repeatedly to the FBI, everybody watching right now, to see if, and no, this is not a joke, it's 2020, will Donald Trump pardon Joe Exotic? What's your bet? Tweet at me at RealTalkRJ. Let me know if you think POTUS will pardon Joe Exotic. I saw somebody say yesterday, if that actually happens... I will remove all doubt that this entire calendar year has just been a computer simulation. Stranger things have happened. Stranger things have happened. Yeah. yeah, the president of the United States pardoning Joe Exotic. Now, it hasn't happened yet. Let's be very clear here. It has not happened yet, but everybody's watching to see what happens. All right, let's get to our next guest. He is his company. He's the founder and CEO of uh, the Bitcoin Well, the presenting sponsor of this show, an expert in cryptocurrency and a purveyor of disruption, Adam O'Brien. It's a real pleasure uh, to welcome you to the show here, my man, making your Real Talk debut. How are you holding up? My man, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, well, hey, we've got a lot to talk about, and I've got some specific questions about Bitcoin, and I guarantee you that our listening audience does as well because they're already uh, – everybody wants to learn about cryptocurrency. And and once the big you know investment houses in the United States and once high-profile investors start to go public with their interest in Bitcoin, uh, I, I think that maybe more and more people start to get into it themselves. Just, uh, I guess, about a week ago, uh, Bitcoin had hidden all time high and i guess part of it like any other commodity like gold or anything else the price fluctuates but but adam bring us up to speed on uh, you know through your eyes what's going on with bitcoin and crypto right now yeah i think it's probably a bit of a combination between um the bitcoin mining cycle which is a big complex uh mathematical equation that uh, we could probably spend an entire show talking about um, and the other part of it is uh, just seeing what's happening with our with our money supply right now. I mean, it's no secret 
the government and the federal uh, treasury is printing money at an unprecedented level. And, and I think that when we see these large institutions and these large uh, corporations kind of fleeing into Bitcoin, or you can see it fleeing away from the dollar, um, that catches the attention of, of other people. And, and it kind of creates this, this, this market that we're seeing right now, which is people flocking to Bitcoin uh, really at unprecedented levels. Yeah, Adam, what can you take us into what, uh, I mean, you've been in the business of Bitcoin for, for what now, four years or something like that? Four or five years? Almost eight, actually. Eight uh, years. 2000, yeah, March 2013 is when I is when I kind of jumped into the ring with Bitcoin. So, so yeah, that, it's been, I know, I was thinking about that the other day. It's been a long time. That was, that was far from mainstream uh, eight years ago. Uh, Sam, you want to, oh, Sam's was, raising his hand like he's in class right now. Sam. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was just, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure if I'm doing the math correctly, Adam was in Bitcoin before you were in AM radio. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. Uh, did, did people, did people think you were nuts at the time? Oh yeah, you, you know the saying: the uh, the first guy through the wall gets the bloodiest uh, is 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 truly a, a statement of my life. I think that um, I've been I've been through the ringer. I've been I've been called uh, heinous names and accused of <laughs> of all sorts of things. People, uh, you know, thinking we're part of some giant Ponzi scheme or ML. It's 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 been hilarious. But it's nice now, you know, in in recent months and really in the last two, three, four years. Uh, it's been a lot better. People truly kind of understanding what Bitcoin is and, and the role that we play in Bitcoin. Because of course, we're not like the biggest misconception is that there is a CEO of, of Bitcoin, right? Um, back in the day, that was a big thing. Well, who's the CEO of Bitcoin? It's like the same person that the CEO of gold, you know, the CEO of gold doesn't exist or the CEO of the internet. Um, Bitcoin is an asset and, and no one kind of controls that asset and it's it's truly decentralized and so um, you know we play a role in the Bitcoin economy but uh, but we aren't the only kind of Bitcoin player I guess I want I have a ton of questions that I want to ask you and, and so do our viewers and so do our listeners this morning Adam but but you know it wouldn't make sense for me to speak with a really impressive person uh, I mean like we we just did and I'm not sure if you heard all of what Catherine Warren had to say the new CEO of of Innovate Edmonton but but she, she sure, I think, has her finger on the pulse of where things are going. I mean, it's obviously early, uh, but through her career, she's proven to have an understanding of, uh, of what jurisdictions need to do to make economic impacts. Uh, was there anything that she said that, that jumped out at you uh, in your position as someone that, uh, I mean, I know you personally, if you're not comfortable if you're not making traditional industries uncomfortable. What did you take from what she said? Yeah, I mean, like, so I didn't, I didn't catch the entire segment. Um, unfortunately I caught kind of the last 10, 15 minutes. Um, but, but yeah, I couldn't agree more. The, the quote unquote status quo doing things the way we've always done them, uh, doesn't work anymore. I mean, I mean, look at, look at around the world is there's no better time to really showcase that we have to be innovative, right? Um, my team, we've obviously, um, been affected and, and, and by the pandemic and, and we have to readjust how we work. And so, um, part of the things that, that our team suffered was, was culture. We were no longer getting that 
in-person face-to-face time. And so uh, we arranged an escape room virtually. And I, you know, it was a company, not even, it was out of Calgary, uh, you know, no, no hate there, please. An Edmonton company using a Calgary company, but uh, they, they shifted and they, and they now have a totally separate and different product offering because they were able to innovate and challenge what the, what the existing um, kind of way of doing things is. And that's what we're all about. We're all about making people think, why do they do what they do with their money? Why does our money work like how it works? Um, and and Bitcoin is a is a really a purveyor and, and a champion of financial sovereignty. And we encourage society as a whole to be financially sovereign, which is um, something that our existing money doesn't really do. Is there a question that you ask uh, someone if someone's speaking with you and they're thinking of of you know someone says I've got a hundred thousand dollars or somebody says I have ten thousand or I have one thousand dollars. Uh, you know, I think one of the things people need to keep in mind is if if, if Bitcoin's at sixteen thousand uh, dollars, Adam, you've reminded me of this several times. That doesn't mean you need sixteen thousand to get in. You can get in with twenty bucks. Right. Um, is there when someone comes to you and says, "I'm thinking of investing in Bitcoin, whether it's a diversification play or, or whatever it is," is there one question that you ask? those that are hesitant uh, when you talk about financial sovereignty when you talk about our our traditional understanding of uh, of wealth building or saving or security uh, is there one question you ask people that you find sort of hits everybody between the eyes and, and really resonates when, when when they evaluate how they view finance yeah i think that um less of a question and more of a statement i i do really enjoy getting people thinking and 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 asking them or or, or just talking about certain points you know when people say, uh, what is Bitcoin backed by asking them, well, what is the dollar backed by? And, 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 you know, um, up until recently it was unfathomable to think that money would be printed at the rate that it is, um, you know, currently today. And so I think those things are kind of lining up, but, but one thing, and, and, um, one thing that I typically kind of just challenge people to do is to, is what I call the 1% rule. And, and, um, you know, I believe that 1%, of your net worth should be in Bitcoin as a, if nothing else, then as a, as an insurance or as a security play um, against everything else. And, and the mindset behind that is that 1% is not going to make or break you at any point in time. Hopefully, um, you, you know, if, if you lost, if you had a hundred bucks and lost $1, you'd be, you'd be fine. And same thing if you had, um, you know, that, that scale is quite true. And so what I think is um, that 1% at certain time could flip and it could be worth 99%. And, and, and that's kind of what we've seen in the past. Um, you know, had you bought a hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin uh, 10 years ago, you'd have millions and millions and millions of dollars today. Um, and, and, and I believe that that is, you know, a, a reaction to what the Bitcoin market is and what the Bitcoin market has been, which is, um, you know, truly uh, a hedge against, kind of the dollar or a bit of a security, um, you know, in an uncertain time. I just, I, I, this is not what you're saying. It's just how it, how it hit me. And you have to have Adam on camera for this. Cause I want to see it. <laughs> but this is, I I'm so proud of you just as a, just what you've done and what you've built. I think, don't you have 40 employees now or something like that? And, and you're, and you're about to go public and, and we'll talk about that in a second. But, but you, you say to us, you know, you sit here and you say, you know, if you would have bought, 
Bitcoin like, you know, <laughs> 10 years ago, you'd have like millions and millions and millions of dollars. And then you just kind of sit there with a demure smile on your face. And I just go, why didn't I listen to you? Why didn't I listen to you? I listened to other people telling me to buy other things and I got taken to the cleaners, Adam. But it's be it's because obviously you saw opportunity there. There was cynicism all around you, but you believed that it was the right play. What was it that gave you then, eight or ten years ago, that that still gives you now the confidence that this is the play? Because even if we talk about cryptocurrency, um, and I'm not pretending like I, I, I know more than what you've explained to me in past, but Bitcoin is one of, what, like hundreds or thousands of different ones? It's the leading one, right? But there's many out there. What gives you the confidence this is the play? I think the... The true value that I find in Bitcoin is the decentralized nature and the fact that I own and I control it, right? The Bitcoin network is uh, a term that I use is, is permissionless. And right now, um, to participate in Canadian finance, uh, you need permission to do so, right? To get a bank account, you have to have an address, which is already makes it exclusive and not inclusive. Um, in order to, you know, you have to, and of course you want to play by, or you have to play by the rules. Um, and that, and that makes a ton of sense because the rules are there, are there for a good reason. However, there's, there's a certain level of the rules, um, that, that we need to kind of just, just be aware of and, and, you know, seeing what has happened in the past, we know that fiat currency, um, in general, fiat currency being the Canadian dollar, the U S dollar, any type of, of kind of. Uh, treasury issued um, money uh, has a lifespan. And, and typically that lifespan is about 150 years. Uh, the US dollar is sitting on, um, you know, roughly 160 years. And so um, the the big bailout in 08 uh, that we kind of saw, we're seeing now the, the unlimited printing supply happening. I think that what makes me most excited is that Bitcoin kind of quote unquote, against all odds, uh, is, is truly paving the way and is, is ultimately making, uh, making headlines because it's performing so well against everything else. And so um, feeling a little bit validated in that, of course. And, um, you know, I put my head down and kind of just, just grinded it out for, for a lot of years. And, um, and, and it's nice to see that the world is now seeing the value of ownership and the value of kind of self-custody and being self-sovereign. Uh, Adam O'Brien, our guest, he's the CEO of Bitcoin Well, based out of Edmonton. Uh, I want to ask you about going public in just a second, but first I want to uh, tee it up and asking you, you say that sort of, um, there's this British band I love called the Poostics and they have this song, the world is turning on. Um, what, why do you think the world is turning on to, uh, to Bitcoin? Do you think that it's had some staying power in, in the sense of, of several years and people have been able to, to perceive some stability with it, some validity to it? How much do you think that COVID, that the pandemic, how much of an impact has COVID had on uh, public interest in Bitcoin? Yeah, I think uh, two things, you know, from the COVID angle. One, it's just exposed a lot of holes in, in our existing economy and our existing money. Uh, but two, people are also open to doing things differently, right? Uh, the concept of a Zoom meeting over over a podcast was was quite foreign for most people. Oh, yeah. um, the, the concept of, of even, you know, look at you, Ryan, starting a new business in a pandemic is crazy. <laughs> and and yet, you know, it's working and, and people are seeing other people take risks and do things differently and then get rewarded. I mean, again, the podcast and this show as a, as an incredible example. Um, and I think that people are kind of 
you know, more, I'm very bullish on our world right now. I'm very bullish on our society to be able to look at things uh, for more than face value and to be able to see things that, you know, kind of slipped through the cracks before. We were all in a very comfortable state and COVID has made us get uncomfortable. And, and I'm a big fan of discomfort. I think that discomfort uh, oftentimes yields a better result and yields kind of, you know, strength. And, and so I'm very, very bullish on our on our world and on our society doing that. Okay, I want to get to a couple of uh, uh, listener questions, viewer questions coming up in just a moment. If you have a question uh, for Adam O'Brien, our guest, he's a CEO of Bitcoin Well. Uh, I'm not going to keep saying the former name, but just because they've they've rebranded, but the formerly known as Bitcoin Solutions, they're the presenting sponsor of the show. Adam, uh, I've known him for a long time, and uh, he's going to be a regular contributor to this show. We're going to be talking about new economy, digital space, a whole bunch of different things. The guy's got a wealth of experience. Um, You want to recognize a couple other sponsors right now that we're very grateful for. The team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge has been there as we've been building this show, and we're grateful to have them on board. They are Alberta's top top Jeep dealers. Uh, this new Jeep lineup that's coming out, uh, remarkable, including the Grand Cherokee that I'm driving right now. I love it. It's got this setting. I just switched down to snow, and it's that simple. I mean, you still got to keep your eyes on the road, everybody. But driving, it's an absolute treat. And Scott and his teams at Sherwood Dodge and St. Albert Dodge are there to set you up, whether it's sales or service you're looking for. They want your business as Alberta's top Jeep dealers. Adam O'Brien, our guest, the CEO of Bitcoin Well. Uh, Adam, you are uh, positioning yourself, and, and I, I th- I'm pretty sure it's, it's been a long road, a long journey to get here, but but what's your time frame of, of when you go public? People have an opportunity to to keep a keen eye. This is is, is an Edmonton success story that one you, you've built right here in Alberta. How does this all unfold? Yeah, so um, basically our venture to being listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange uh, venture is uh, is the, the ability to give investors exposure to Bitcoin without the potential downside. Because while Bitcoin is a hedge, and I honestly and truly believe uh, in the 1% rule and, and everything I've just said, Bitcoin is very volatile. And volatility is, is not for everyone, of course. And so um, what we've done is we've built a business that is, is basically uh, profitable on uh, transactions. And so as long as people are trading Bitcoin, essentially, as long as Bitcoin remains volatile, um, we will have people buying and selling Bitcoin and and our stock or our market um, should be conducive to that. So so once we do get listed and, and as far as timelines go, um, you know, my time and real time are often very different. I think as with as with every great CEO, everything wants everyone wants everything done faster than, than they expect. Uh, but I, uh, I don't think I can comment strictly on time simply because I don't know. And there's lots of, lots of kind of um, balls in the air uh, to that respect. But I do truly uh, think it will be hopefully within the next few months um, that will be listed and that we'll be able, I mean, we're going to be the first publicly traded Bitcoin ATM company in the world. And, in the world. And it's, it's kind of offering that's, that's that validity and, and, and that giving, giving an industry that, um, We've kind of been a part of, we're seven years old in this seven-year-old industry. I've been in Bitcoin eight years. The company has been into Bitcoin ATMs for seven years. Um, this this is so exciting for us to be able to give the world exposure to the most influential asset of our generation, uh, you know, by way of, of a profitable entity that you can trust 
um, is is very very exciting for us. Uh, Chris is is watching or listening in right now, and he and he tweets at me, and he says, I, "I'm watching uh, on YouTube right now." He says, "And Adam has me scratching my head. What am I doing?" He says, "One percent is fa to invest." So it sounds to me like Chris might be looking to get into Bitcoin a little bit. Um, and I have a question from Julie. I want to put in front of you in just a second here, Adam. But what does it mean to you? I mean, when when you get there, and I, and I would imagine. I mean, I don't know, maybe in a pandemic era, this will be different, which is unfortunate. But I picture you ringing the bell on the stock exchange. I think that would be such a moment. <laughs> but 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 as you stood as as you stepped up to the bell to ring the bell, what would that mean to you to to be participating in a in a so-called traditional space as well to be publicly traded? Uh, because I. I mean, I know for a fact, and I don't know how much you want to get into this. I would love to get into it right here on Real Talk. The big banks have not been friendly to you. In fact, the big banks have made <laughs> your life very difficult, haven't they? Yeah, um, I think my investor relations team would <laughs> probably sewer me if we went too, too deep into this. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, ultimately, traditional finance... Um, and, and a term that we use here is, is legacy finance, maybe uh, a little bit uh, cheeky um, to say that, but, but it, hasn't, it hasn't always been uh, easy. However, I do um, think that that's been to our benefit. And, and what I mean by that is if I was able to, to walk into a regular bank and get a regular bank account, if I was able to get a you know, standard, raise some debt and then grow, I don't think the company would be as strong as it is today. I was faced with a level of adversity um, that, that we managed and only managed, but that we kind of, you know, excelled through. And, and now that we're through it, now that we have the validity of, you know, poised to become a public company, we have the validity of a market that is the hottest market on planet earth right now. Um, we kind of are able to, to stop, uh, not, not that we ever licked our wounds, but, but, you know, we have our lashings and we're, and we're stronger because of it, right. When you're working out, Ryan, you know this, right? You're on the bench press and you're and you're cranking out the chest exercises. Uh, you know your your muscles tear and then they build back stronger. And and we went through a period of of tearing our muscles. We weren't allowed to participate in traditional or legacy financial instruments. And now that we are, we have all this wealth of knowledge and and we have these these giant muscles behind us um, that we're able to use. And 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 ultimately, we're a stronger company because of that. Let me ask you this. I want to get to some uh, viewer and listener questions here uh, and the hashtag Real Talk RJ, which is powered by Park Power. Uh, Julie wonders, could you ask Adam to describe the difference between and I don't even know what she's talking about, Adam. So this is good. I'll, I'll take the answer too. Uh, she says ETH, LTC or BCH and BTC for us newbies that don't know the language. She says, I know I could Google it, but I'd love to hear him lay it out. No, yeah, and that's a that's a great question, and 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 honestly, um, googling it will get you so far, and and in the same way that that googling anything will get you so far, I guess I won't dive into details. Um, so ETH or ETH or Ethereum, LTC or Litecoin, BCH or Bitcoin Cash or BTC, which of course is Bitcoin. Ryan, you noted there are a plethora of other cryptocurrencies out there. Um, where Bitcoin differs from everything else is that it's truly decentralized. And, and what decentralized means is that there's no person or no organization or group of people um, that kind of control the code. So um, there are many blockchain products or blockchain companies or blockchain projects that claim to be decentralized. And they have decentralized capabilities and they have decentralized um, uh, protocols. 
However, at the end of the day, there is someone behind the scenes that controls the kill switch. And so in the same way that you have an email address, uh, real talk at ryanjesperson.com or um, I think you said your your direct email the other day on, on air. Yeah, people can email me directly, ryan at ryanjesperson.com. You got it. Bingo. So Ryan at RyanJesperson.com, um, you you own and you control that. That should, for all intents and purposes, be quote unquote decentralized that you want to control. However, you likely use an email client like Google or like Microsoft Exchange or something else, and they have the kill switch. So if if you stop paying your bill, your email no longer works. And that is a centralized kind of closed loop system. Um, Bitcoin is not like that. There is no one single party that you need to have permission to participate in the Bitcoin network. Whereas I would say all, and if not all, then there are very, very few, I'm talking like maybe one or two other cryptocurrencies that are truly decentralized. Even a Litecoin, which I'll dive into the weeds just a little bit here. Litecoin is basically a coin that has the exact same principles as Bitcoin, just on a, on a, on a four scale level. So where there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin, there will be 84 million Litecoin. Where, where the Bitcoin blocks last 10 minutes, Litecoin's last two and a half minutes. So just think of Litecoin as basically, you know, one fourth of what Bitcoin is, but there's a very public founder of Litecoin. And a few years ago, that very public founder of Litecoin sold all of his Litecoin um, that he had. He had minted a ton, he owned a ton, he was the founder of this cryptocurrency. And what happened was after he sold it, the entire market dumped in the same way the Pfizer market dumped when the CEO of Pfizer ditched all his stock the yeah. day after the announcement. Yeah. And so while the protocols of Litecoin weren't necessarily centralized, the price of Litecoin, the Litecoin market was, it was centralized and it was dependent on the founder of Litecoin holding his Litecoin, which is the very dangerous thing to be in. There is no CEO of Bitcoin. The founder of Bitcoin is intentionally anonymous and, and, and in my opinion, will be until the end of time. Um, Bitcoin is not dependent on any person or any one being. And that is by and large, the thing that sets it apart from absolutely everything else on this planet. Adam, I, I'm, I'm hoping, and I'm going to be honest, I'm guilty of only, <laughs> this is not, it's not irresponsible. If I was presenting it as news without reading the story and only reading the headline, that would be irresponsible. I've only read the headline. So maybe you can take us into the story. Uh, PayPal is now to a certain degree in the Bitcoin game. And my understanding of it is that people can use their PayPal to purchase Bitcoin. That would strike me immediately as a competitor to you. Uh, take us into the story and, and what this all means with PayPal getting yeah, involved. Yeah, so the PayPal and also Wealthsimple uh, has a very similar product. Um, they, they advertise as selling Bitcoin. Um, what they do is they sell exposure to Bitcoin. So they essentially sell a Bitcoin derivative where you don't ever take custody or control of that Bitcoin. And so the, the main problem with that is that we are very used to, to, to having um, other places like our stockbrokers or, or our banks take custody of our funds or of our assets. Um, however, what PayPal is proposing is that you buy Bitcoin, um, you leave it in PayPal's custody, and then when you want to sell it, you hope that PayPal allows you to sell it and then gives you the money for it at market value. So buying a Bitcoin through a PayPal or through another derivative platform, um, you're just trusting them when there's a much easier and safer and faster alternative uh, to just buying Bitcoin and then self-custodying it. Um, and, and that truly is the safest way to do it. On my wall, uh, kind of behind the computer, but I have a, I have a, a 
a, a picture, I guess, of the 1933 declaration that uh, the, U the United States government made it illegal to own gold. And the reason they were able to do that was because over 90% of gold in the United States was held in the custody of the banks. So they just rolled up to the banks, took all the gold and off they went. Um, if we don't get used and don't get into the habit of self-custodying our funds, uh, we run that risk again. And, and whether or not the government will ever uh, try and confiscate your Bitcoin, I'm, I'm not sitting here with a tinfoil hat on saying that's going to happen. But I'm saying um, we all wear a seatbelt when we drive our cars, not because we think we're going to crash, but because we know that's the best thing to do. And um, I would say that holding control and self-custody um, of your Bitcoin is like wearing your seatbelt. You're not doing it because you're scared and you're a conspiracy theorist and you think that everything is going to, I can probably say hell in a handbasket now on, on, on real talk. Um, but, but we are uh, saying that it's just, this is just the responsible thing to do. Adam, uh, you know, it, it's 930 on the nose, which means, uh, you know, in a traditional radio setting, I'd, I'd, I'd already be late for my commercial break and I'd have to get to the news and I have a guest <laughs> coming up, but, but here, if another great question, I mean, you comes can buy in, the newsroom lunch. That's what you used to say. You used I, I, I used to, to buy the newsroom lunch. lunch. So, <laughs> so maybe, well, I'll buy Sam Brooks lunch anyway because uh, I'll buy Sam Brooks. I know I shouldn't. I was going to say every day, but he'll probably treat that as some sort of a verbal contract, and then and then I'll be on the hook for these <laughs> for these expensive lunches. But but um, uh, I, I want to put this in front of you, Adam, because I know that you welcome difficult questions. I know the last thing you want is, is criticism around on the on the Real Talk RJ hashtag that you have not had a chance to address. So let me wrap up our conversation into a couple minutes of overtime here with a, a point from Patrick Wu, um, who says people might be getting excited about Bitcoin uh, from this conversation on Real Talk. But keep in mind that this talk wouldn't even be on air at all if this highly volatile asset crashed instead of peaked at the wrong time. And then he says something which is true across the board. He says, like with all stocks, research what you're investing in. I think we can all agree on that. But what do you make of Patrick uh, saying it's a highly volatile asset? We wouldn't even be talking about this if it had crashed instead of peaked at the wrong time. Yeah, well, I mean, totally. I mean, I think we would be talking about it because we are the presenting sponsor of Real Talk and very proud to be. Uh, but he's right. I mean, the mainstream media picks up on Bitcoin when it when it peaks and then when it when it crashes. Um, and I would I would just challenge Patrick and, and everyone with that mindset to to zoom out. Zoom out is a is a term that I use quite frequently and that I uh, hear the Bitcoin community using. Um, Bitcoin crashing is such an interesting concept because uh, Bitcoin five years ago um, was worth a fraction of what it is today. So so when something is worth a hundred dollars um, six seven years ago and crashes to three thousand dollars. That is a great crash and a crash that I will welcome time in and time out. Um, I would be very, very, very surprised uh, and probably broke if Bitcoin crashed to, to $100 again. Um, but I don't think that's possible. I don't think that's happening. I think we'd be hard pressed to see Bitcoin under $10,000 again. Um, and, and, and frankly, if Bitcoin crashes to $10,000, uh, guess what? It was worth 3000 in March and it was worth 300 in 2016. And so um, you look at everything in a zoomed out way and you see, you know, you see gold rising a ton and gold is largely by and large seen as a safe haven. And it sees a very, very comfortable kind of, you know, 
six to 12% increase in value, basically keeping pace with inflation. Um, and that's, and that's great. And Bitcoin is a lot more volatile than that. But when you zoom out and you see just the nice kind of steady growth of Bitcoin on basically a 45 degree angle over the last decade, um, you realize that, you know, if you zoom out and you don't take a look at the peaks and valleys, uh, you have an asset that year over year and, you know, decade over decade, um, it is rising in value consistently. Adam O'Brien, CEO of Bitcoin, well, proudly headquartered uh, right here in Edmonton with Bitcoin ATMs uh, across the country, soon to go public. Uh, next time you're here on the show, I'll look forward to talking to you about that as well. Plus, Adam, we'll get into more disruption. And I know that you, I mean, there's a million things you love to talk about. So it's always great to connect. Thanks for making time for us this morning. And thanks for your support of Real Talk, Adam. We really appreciate it. I'm proud to do so, man. Super, super excited, and we'll chat soon. You got it. That's Adam O'Brien. Uh, Sam, let's uh, recognize a sponsor here. We'll get to some quick headlines, and then I know Kyla Lee is standing by, uh, criminal defense lawyer. Uh, as a matter of fact, Kyla named, I, I think it was one of the 100 most influential lawyers in Canada. She's going to talk to us about Alberta's drunk driving legislation in, in just a second. I mentioned that the team at Park Power, uh, and by the way, welcome aboard, Park Power. They're powering our Real Talk RJ hashtag. This is another local company, uh, a local utilities provider. They're in the business of internet, electricity, and natural gas right here in the province of Alberta. They're offering a different option than these large traditional, what they call the incumbent utility companies. You have a problem? You dial into the call center. It's somebody here in Alberta you're gonna talk to. All of their billing, customer service operations, while well, they're based here in Alberta and in addition to their low rates, their awesome service, they also give back. They share their profits with local communities. Check them out on social. They're great on social or at parkpower.ca. We link to everything under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Sam, let's take a quick look at the news before we get in uh, with Kyla Lee. We'll talk about drunk driving, uh, impaired driving legislation here in Alberta in just a moment. But first, the headlines. Tell you. It's hard to explain how liberating it is to go to, into a newscast, so to speak, at 9.35. I mean, this would be driving people crazy in another format, but wouldn't you rather have a great question, an additional question for a guest before we get to the news? I sure would. Uh, Canadian Hollywood star, the star of Juno and many other films, a native of Halifax, Elliot Page, uh, made a debut of sorts yesterday with a statement, I am trans, my name is Elliot I feel lucky to be writing this. Elliot went on to say, I'm also scared of the invasiveness, the hate, the jokes, and of violence. Elliot Page immediately uh, becoming a leader in the transgender community. A fascinating story to follow. Alberta's COVID numbers are topping the charts. This is not something for us to be proud of. Uh, certainly, if you take a look across Canada, Alberta leading uh, Canada right now with more than 16,000 COVID cases. Ontario with a population three times the size. Look at that, 14,500 in Quebec, uh, just over 12,000 cases. So that is the reality there. We'll keep an eye on other stories as they develop. We're super excited about tomorrow's show. We have not locked down 100% confirmed both guests, but I'm predicting that tomorrow's going to be the most watched program in, in Real Talk's 
short history. Uh, I'm looking forward to checking in with Kyla Lee right now. Uh, as you heard yesterday in our newscast, and as you, as you heard yesterday, I'm sure in conversation people were having Alberta rolling out stricter impaired driving penalties roadside coming into effect yesterday, December 1st. Uh, the government says it will get impaired drivers off the street immediately. It means that first-time impaired drivers uh, will be handled more quickly outside of court. Impaired drivers could face larger fines and lose their vehicles for up to 30 days. Now, that's if there's not an injury in the accident. That's if there's not kids in the car. There are a lot of ways that you could still find yourself in the criminal justice system, so to speak. Kyla Lee is a uh, decorated Vancouver criminal lawyer with uh, plenty of expertise in DUI. Uh, she was, as a matter of fact, named just last year one of the top 25 most influential lawyers in Canada for 2019. Uh, Kyla Lee making time for us this morning. Welcome to Real Talk and, and good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, Kyla, just out of the gates, I've, I've seen some uh, defense lawyers come forward and, and take issue with Alberta's new impaired driving legislation. What's, what's your initial response to it now that you've had some time to, to take a look at it, what it actually means for people? I think it's really problematic. I think it's ultimately going to be found unconstitutional by Alberta's courts. And I think that it erodes people's charter rights and erodes the skills necessary for police to have to conduct proper impaired driving investigations. Okay, so where, where does it fall flat? Is I mean the one the one thing I'll say that that sort of jumps out at me is, is that the, the a police officer is potentially playing judge and jury on the spot. Is is that what you're honing in on? That is one of the things that's a big concern. And we have a similar program here in British Columbia. To some extent, this was modeled after that. And the reason why it's different and why I'm more concerned about Alberta's law is that in order to request a review of the suspension, you can ask the police officer roadside to give you a second test, but there's no obligation on them to actually follow through with that, uh, which means that the officer basically gets to decide whether you have the right to challenge it in that moment. Okay, so what's your, uh, first of all, can I just, uh, let me let me just say, it's, it's, it's oftentimes, and I haven't read the comments yet, and, and I'm sure that people will have a lot to say, Kyla, uh, about our conversation, but, but uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of tough to have a conversation like this with, with, uh, with um, uh, Sam, just put, just put it. Yeah, there we go. Kind uh, of, kind of difficult to have a conversation like this without coming across like, like we're condoning impaired driving, right? I'm saying, well, what do people need to keep in mind if they're, that's not the spirit of this conversation. That's not what we're getting at, but we're concerned about people that may be wrongfully convicted, people that may find themselves in a complicating circumstance, and obviously everybody needs to know their rights. So in the context of this new legislation here, what does the average person, aside from don't drink and drive, what does the average person need to keep in mind? What do they need to know? What do we need to know? You can lose your license now in Alberta immediately on the spot and have your car impounded immediately on the spot, even for just blowing a fail into a roadside breathalyzer. So it used to be that if you blew a fail, you would be taken back to the police station, you would be subject to further testing, there'd be an investigation, and the results of those evidentiary tests would determine whether you got your license suspended. But now it happens right away on the roadside um, based on a single test, and the officer doesn't even have to have grounds to ask you to blow into the roadside breathalyzer. They can do that completely arbitrarily. Uh, 
So this is uh, some are describing it, and I'm and I'm curious to get uh, Sherry Arsenault's take. I'll be talking to her uh, with Families for Justice right after I talk to you, Kyla. She's experienced uh, the worst kind of loss. She lost her son in a horrific crash nine years ago, uh, and she's de- she's dedicated her life to ensuring that there's tougher drunk driving penalties in place. This is being described as tougher drunk driving measures, tougher measures against drunk driving while clearing up the courts. Uh, Would you agree with that assessment? Are these tougher laws in the sense that you think that they may cut down on drunk driving or is the incentive not there? I suspect Sherry's going to say to me she doesn't like the fact that people aren't headed to criminal court on a first-time offense. And I agree with that. I think there's a real um, deterrent factor about going to court, having to stand in front of a judge, having to hear the story of the officers testifying and you're having a trial or having to be held accountable for your conduct if you're pleading guilty and you're being sentenced. And that's being taken out of the process. People are being punished instantaneously. They can apply for a hearing with the Registrar of Motor Vehicles and maybe uh, they'll win and maybe they'll get a decision in a, you know, a month or a year, because they can extend the time. And we see in British Columbia long delays, they're separating ultimately the accountability from the punishment. And those two have to go hand in hand to change people's behavior. So Kyla, you say that, you know, in your opinion, this is unconstitutional. You think it's going to get struck down in court. That only has to happen once, right? That that's, that's, there has to be one successful court challenge. Then you've got precedent then the whole thing collapses. How do you see this playing out? What's your prediction? Well, I mean, if I can base it on what happened in British Columbia, we initially did have a successful court challenge all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. The law was found unconstitutional because there wasn't enough of a review process, but the government was able to amend the law and it's been challenged twice since then unsuccessfully. So even one successful challenge doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be the end of roadside prohibitions in Alberta. What have you seen, Kyla, uh, in different jurisdictions, and I'm sure that you've studied many of them through the course of, of, of your criminal defense career, uh, what would you describe as an effective amendment to impaired driving legislation, or which jurisdiction is doing it right in your assessment, and, and what are they doing that's different than everywhere else? I mean, that's that's really hard to say because the constitutions of different countries are different. But I think the system that we had in place in Canada was being done well when it was being done properly by police. And what I saw as a defense lawyer was a problem with police training and police procedure. Police were not following proper procedures in the investigations. They weren't well trained on how to conduct them. And that's why cases were being lost. Any case that I have where I look at the police followed all the steps properly and did everything correctly, there's not a very good chance that I would succeed. And I think, you know, we rushed to judgment about the strength of the law without considering the strength of the training and the effectiveness in which police are administering the law in their investigations. Uh, Kyla, uh, this is, uh, I I know, a conversation that people are going to be having uh, through the holiday break. And and this is sort of the type of talk, because typically it's it's been the season. I hate to put it this way, but let's just speak frankly. It's it's been the season of impaired driving. Like it just, you know, every time we get into the holidays, we see the campaigns from MAD and other groups, you know, the the holiday campaigns, because typically everybody's been at holiday parties. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's going to be a little bit different. Uh, My only hope is that it means that fewer people will be driving impaired. Another one of the conversations 
conversations that we've been having uh, nationally for the past couple of years is the impact of uh, new cannabis legislation. In other words, the decriminalization, the legalization of cannabis uh, and people driving. Those that were concerned about the legalization of cannabis, I think we're, we're oftentimes referencing what they suspected would be happening on, on Canadian roadways. What have you seen with regards to trends uh, since the legalization of cannabis? I, with regards to statistics released by uh, police agencies, including here in Alberta, haven't seen the numbers that some people were concerned about, some people were expecting with cannabis legalization. How about from your perspective as a defense lawyer? There have been really no significant increases in cannabis impaired driving. Um, I see more cases of people who are driving impaired by drugs like fentanyl and narcotics than cannabis cases, even after legalization. I think that because we had a more relaxed attitude about cannabis use in Canada leading up to legalization, that we never saw that uptick that they had in the US where even just having a single joint would mean you'd go to jail for quite a long period of time in some instances. Uh, Eileen's listening in. We appreciate her chiming in on the Real Talk RJ hashtag. Uh, she's wondering, uh, Kyla, will a first-time uh, DUI offender, in other words, I suppose someone that loses their license on the spot, has their car towed, and, and, and falls under this, this new legislation in Alberta, will there be insurance implications under this new law? Do you know yet if there will be? I don't know the answer to that, and in part because Alberta has a privatized insurance system, so everybody's insurance comes from a different source. Um, the answer isn't clear because it'll depend on your individual insurer. Okay. Uh, Kyla Lee, I think we just accidentally had Kyla bumped out of our... Uh, there we are. We got you right back. Kyla, I know that you've got a busy morning in store, and you agreed to join us on short notice. Uh, we really appreciate it, and thanks for your expertise on this. Congratulations on the trajectory of your career right now. Thank you. And thank you for having me. And congratulations on your show. Thank you. I appreciate that. You can follow Kyla on Twitter at IRP Lawyer. Uh, she's doing things differently. Uh, I underestimated uh, to a certain degree, didn't I? I? I undersold her earlier when I said she was she was, uh, you know, named as one of the top influential uh, top 100 influential lawyers in Canada. Uh, no, top 25. Uh, and she's doing amazing work. You can Google her to learn more about it. And I encourage you, if you follow her on Twitter at IRP Lawyer, to see the videos that she does. Uh, pretty interesting and informative videos. For example, uh, it was out there, you know, Ponzu sauce, like uh, <laughs> like like the food condiment Ponzu sauce. Uh, it, it had been uh, rumored online that you could fail a breathalyzer with Ponzu sauce. So it doesn't matter if you're out eating green tea and noodles. You, In theory, uh, you might fail a breathalyzer. She takes that on in her videos, really informative stuff. And I encourage you uh, to give her a follow. Let's get another take on this story in just a moment. But first, Sam, I want to recognize one of our sponsors that's making sure that Real Talk is on the air this morning. And we sure appreciate the team at Alta Storage. Uh, this may be the time of year where, you know, the snow is starting to fall. It's getting a little bit colder and, and, and you are, well, you're committed. You're going to force yourself to finally take on that basement project or that third bedroom or the attic or the back garden shed, whatever it is where all that clutter is. You want to move some of it out? You want to get rid of some of it? You want to put some of it maybe in storage? Well, the team at Alta Storage has the, you know, these frog boxes. They're like the eco-friendly moving boxes. 
Uh, you can pick those up there. They can drop them off, and then and then they can also set you up with a storage solution. So if you're endeavoring through these winter months to finally put in some time, bring yourself the peace of mind that comes with decluttering. The team at Alta Storage has you covered, and you can check out altastorage.ca or link to them under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Uh, our next guest has a very, very special place in my heart. Uh, I've spoken to her uh, a number of times. Uh, the, the reason that we speak is tragic. Her voice, though, extremely powerful. Uh, back about nine years ago, as a matter of fact, just over nine years ago, on November 26th of 2011, Bradley Arsenault, Cole Novak, and Thaddeus Lake three best buds, Brad, Cole, and Thad, were on their way home when they were violently struck from behind. Their vehicle struck from behind by a pickup truck traveling at 200 kilometers an hour. These three bright lights were immediately extinguished, altering the lives of thousands of people forever. One of them is Bradley's mom, Sherry Arsenault, who has dedicated her life to fighting for tougher impaired driving legislation, more effective impaired driving legislation in Canada, including her home province of Alberta. By way of her involvement with Families for Justice, it's a real honor to welcome to the program Sherry Arsenault over the phone this morning. Sherry, welcome to Real Talk and thank you for making time for us. Well, thank you, Ryan, so much. That's that's quite a introduction, and geez, uh, you bring tears to my eyes. <laughs> well, uh, Sherry, I've got no problem telling you that I've got so much love for you and your family, and I've got so much respect for for what you have done over the years, despite the fact that you were placed in such a horrific circumstance. Sherry, what do you make? of what you saw from the Alberta government yesterday. Take us into your opinion on Alberta's new impaired driving legislation. Well, I, I mean, I discussed it with them last, uh, last spring because uh, you know, it was leaked out that, that they were going to do this. And I, I fought tooth and nail to get a meeting with uh, then the minister at the time, Doug Schweitzer. And... Um, you know, I, the writing was on the wall right there. They were slipping it through under the cover of, of a, the pandemic with no debate. And uh, under the, to, to me, it's disturbing and it's very disheartening. Uh, they're, they're misleading Albertans with, um, with their stats from out of uh, BC. And um, they're taking a very, very serious crime. It's in the criminal code for a reason and reducing it to uh, an administrative fine. And, you know, we all know administrative fines are for less serious crimes. And what to me, what they're telling Albertans is impaired driving is not serious. What would you have liked to see? Because I, I know that, uh, well, I, let me not say I know that. I assume that uh, you were not completely content with Alberta's existing impaired driving legislation, or you wouldn't be working so hard to have it changed, what would you have liked to see the government do, Sherry? Well, I would have liked to have seen them strengthen it, strengthen it uh, for more of a deterrence for individuals that still engage. Or, I mean, there's a lot of people that that drive impaired simply for the fact that the chances of getting caught are slim to none, and. 
I mean, uh, a defense lawyer explained it to me because she reached out and she said, whether you get behind, when you get behind the wheel, whether you get home safely and don't hurt yourself or kill someone else, or you do, it's just good luck that you didn't. You're culpable the minute you turn the key in your ignition and drive away. So essentially, our government told me, don't worry, Sherry, if someone is killed, then we'll charge them criminally. And, you know, to me, we don't want it to happen in the first place. So there needs to be a strong enough deterrence in the beginning to to change the behavior of people. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I... I've been reading about this and just on the surface and, and Sherry, I'm, I'm so grateful that you're here. I'm grateful that Kyla Lee was here, uh, the, the lawyer to talk to us about this because we really want to understand it. I recognize, I mean, here's where I stand on it with, with what I understand about the legislation to this point. I understand that our courts are absolutely jammed right now. And in a lot of cases, um, uh, and I may be using the wrong terminology, but charges are being stayed. I mean, charges are essentially being dismissed uh, against people because the courts cannot hear their their trial or the courts cannot facilitate their prosecution in, in a reasonable amount of time. And, and charges are being dropped, which I know is not acceptable to anybody. I know that COVID has has made this more of an issue in the courts as, as they endeavor to catch up, but they were already behind the eight ball, so to speak. So we do need to find a way uh, to cut the caseload or to find some way uh, without, I guess, hiring a whole bunch of more crown prosecutors and building more courtrooms. We need to find a way to address that. At the same time, like you said, Sherry, uh, if somebody drives drunk and they know that uh, so long as they don't hit someone in a crosswalk, right, or so long as they don't cause a motor vehicle accident or so long as they don't roll over into the ditch or so long as they don't have a kid in the car with them, if they get busted, really, you know, a month, uh, uh, you lose your car for a month, you pay a thousand dollar fine and, and like whatever else, you know, and it's, it's really no big deal. So the government says, the government says, well, yes, but if there is an injury or, or if there's a fatality, then you'll be criminally charged. I'm, I agree with you. It appears to be somewhat of a, have somewhat of a diluted effect. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, I, I understand the backlog in the court system. Uh, when my son and his two friends were killed, it was darn near three painful years before it came to conclusion through the court system. Uh, the offenders served less time than we waited for him to be sentenced. So, you know, I, I understand that, and it is worrisome to, to all of us. But to take serious crimes and and downgrade them, water them down to administrative fines is not the answer. Uh, you know, it could be funding. Uh, you, know, you know how much our cities have grown. We're, we have no problem building new Michaels and Staples and Walmarts, but yet our courtrooms have not changed over decades. We need schools, we need hospitals, and unfortunately, we need more courtrooms. And you cannot water down and downgrade a serious crime. It's, I mean, how do you explain that? In one province, it's a criminal offense, but in Alberta, it's a it's a credit card fine. Sherry, it makes no sense to me, and it is the number one crime in Canada. You mean with regards to frequency? 
Well, it, it, uh, impaired driving causing death is three times more than all other forms of homicide or, you know, criminal deaths. It is the absolute biggest uh, cause of criminal death in Canada by a large amount. Sure. You, you, uh, you know, on, on November 26th of, of 2011, obviously your life and the lives of so many people dear to you changed forever. Um, and, and you have dedicated your life now, as I said, when I introduced you, when I welcomed you to the program, you, you've dedicated your life to, to making a real impact and, 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 and to honoring the legacy of your son. Um, I would imagine, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I would imagine that you have learned more about impaired driving statistics and legislation and everything else uh, than you ever would have known before November of 2011. And you've probably gleaned some pretty interesting and informed insight into how the public views or treats or sadly perpetuates impaired driving. What insights have you gleaned over the past nine years? I mean, well, we, can, we can talk about politicians, we can talk about prosecutors, but what about people? Well, that's a very good question, Ryan. You know, I've come to learn the tragedy hits. It hits a community, it hits a city, maybe a rural town, and everybody's completely devastated, especially, you know, when it's, when it's uh, young people everybody's devastated and then they soon forget there was no outrage in Alberta as um, the UCP were slipping this this bill through there was not much talk about it It, uh, testified in Ottawa where our federal government have downgraded this crime twice in the last eight years or, or last what I should say in the last six years that they've been in power and there seems to be no outrage. There's outrage at the time, but it goes away. It's like the public maybe perceives it as, oh, he made a mistake. Ah, oh, he made a mistake. She made a mistake. You know, people do make mistakes. I understand that. But, you know, a car is a weapon. And the devastation that it can cause when people are excessive speeds and impaired one or the other or both it's it i mean it's senseless it's senseless it it doesn't have to be like that i i don't know if i want to uh sharing and ask you this question because i just i i think it's it's important for people to understand uh but and i apologize if if this question is difficult for you to answer um jonathan pratt was convicted of uh killing your son, along with his friends, Cole and Thad. Um, He was sentenced uh, to eight years and handed a lifetime driving ban. Uh, But back in 2018, I know that his parole hearing in in Winnipeg uh, granted him six months of day parole. That was back in 2018. Um, Where do you stand with regards to forgiveness? Where do you stand with regards to... Uh, taking a position on whether or not the sentence and the carrying out of that sentence was appropriate. Where are you now, nine years after the crash? Well, I can tell you that uh, corrections and the the parole board of Canada is just another whole form of victimization. Uh, You know, the eight-year sentence... You know, it was, uh, you know, concurrent. Uh, 
you know, in essence, after, you know, a third of that, they are on day parole. And so they don't even come really close to serving a sentence. When you ask about forgiveness, that that's tough for me because I like to consider myself a forgiving person. I mean, what I wouldn't do to bring my son back and his two friends, but I can't do that. But this Mr. Jonathan Pratt's, you know, it's hard because he he never, ever showed remorse, not at parole hearings. He essentially couldn't quite understand what the big to-do was about, you know. he. So it's hard. It's hard to forgive him because he has yet to apologize to to the families, to anybody. He's, he's more of feel sorry for himself that he's in this predicament. He's never apologized. So one to you, day, maybe, maybe I can forgive. I don't know. I don't know how you forgive some. Well, I mean, I, I guess people will get all, you know, <laughs> they'll talk about how you can forgive someone who's never apologized. I, I don't know how I ever could. Uh, yeah. Sherry. You know, any program that, you know, there it's, it's not, not much programs that, that uh, they're expected to take, but he didn't really gather any insight that the three lives were lost because of his actions. And, and, you know, he was a habitual drunk driver. He, he admitted he drove over 300 times impaired. That was the first time he got caught. That's how he had never been caught before. So, and you know, that's the problem I have with this new law too is to me, it, it is just telling, it's essentially giving everybody one freebie. Yeah. And I mean, every time they don't get caught, they're getting a freebie, let's face it. So, you know, it's, I just, I just want to see people, something that deters people. And, and to me, it's the pocketbook that hurts. Instead of lowering the fine from 1500 to 1000 they should have tripled the fine. You know, three thousand dollars. They they could have been stronger in so many ways. Taking loss of license for a year down to three months, and also, you know, it's hard for me to admit, but I have to agree with the defense lawyers on the civil liberties end of it. The police essentially become become the judge, jury, and executioner on impaired drivers now. And what if me or you truly weren't impaired? what do we do? You know, it's so to me, it's an all around bad law and they, and they fiddle with the stats out of BC. I'm inclined to agree with you, Sherry. I mean, I, I quite frankly, I think that the fine should be $10,000. Um, and I, well, and I guarantee I would you, say, I, <laughs> I would have said that, but then I'm afraid the public would, would think, well, that's too much. Well, it's too much. You well, know, yeah, but it's going to be, but you know what, Sherry, like if I think, I mean, I'm not saying if me, Ryan Jesperson, but just as a person, if I think that by getting pulled over, I go, well, no, I'm a good drunk driver. You know, I, I've, dri- I've driven drunk 300 times. Yeah. I'm, I'm good at it, so I'm not going to crash. And if I get busted, it's a thousand bucks. I mean, you know, I spend a thousand bucks betting on football on Sunday. I'm not worried about it. If I think it's going to be ten right. grand, if I, it's going to be ten grand, and I'm going to lose my license for a year or lose my license permanently, maybe I'll take it a little bit more seriously. Yeah. Well, it actually, you know, Quebec has done an amazing thing. They have t- turned it, if you are a second time caught, you lose your license for life. Good. And, I mean, wouldn't that deter people? That 
I think that's a, a great law. I actually spoke with many people who drive drunk, and I, uh, they were honest with me. They said 20000 bucks, and I'd never do it again because, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> other than that, they just pay it. They just pay it. They don't care. Sherry, I've got so much love in my heart for you. Yeah, and I, I want you to know how much support we're seeing for you as well uh, on our text line. Um, uh, Alicia is listening in from Calgary this morning. She says, thank you so much for bringing Sherry on the show. She's bang on on the money with the new drunk driving laws. I agree with her uh, that the fine should be sky high. That's Alicia who's listening in uh, from Calgary this morning. Sherry, is there anything? Sky high. Well, you know, I... To me, it's a, a really poor way to handle such a serious crime. And, um, you know, I, I hope everybody who gets a chance maybe can speak to their MLAs because, you know, this was the tough on crime party. And to me, they're almost, you know, they were tougher on trespassers a year ago but with bigger fines and uh, bigger jail sentences. Trespassing versus impaired driving, I, I don't understand it. Yeah, well, I guess the rural base isn't upset about drunk driving as much as it is about trespassers. Uh, follow the money, Sherry. Yeah, That's what we yeah. do here on the show. Uh, I'm I'm so proud of you, my friend, and I really appreciate you making time for us this morning, Sherry. Is there anything that you want to leave with our audience to walk with today, to think about today? Well, I just everybody stay safe, wear a mask, <laughs> don't drive drunk, <laughs> mm. and um, and you know, thank thank you very much, Ryan, for including me in this discussion because oh, it means a lot to me. It really does. Well, Sherry, I'm I'm just. Uh have so much respect for you and uh, love to your family uh, this holiday season. That's Sherry Arsenault, uh, who is obviously a remarkable person. Um, obviously, Sherry also wishes that she would have never met me, right? She wishes she would not be doing these radio interviews. She wishes that none of you knew her name because she's an advocate for tougher penalties for impaired driving. She wishes that on November 26, 2011, a driver at two and a half to three times uh, the legal limit uh, of booze in his blood uh, would not have rear-ended her son at 200 kilometers an hour. The police report showing no signs of swerving, no signs of braking in what was a horrific crash uh, on an Alberta highway. Uh, you can check out bradcolethad.com. That's Brad Cole with a K, bradcolethad.com if you want to learn more about what Sherry's doing and you can connect with her on Twitter. You know, from my Twitter account at Ryan Jesperson, every morning I, I put out the handles of who's going to be on the show and that's a great way for you to follow these people. Uh, and and uh, I know a lot of you started following Adam O'Brien earlier today uh, and started following Kyla Lee out of Vancouver, the lawyer we just spoke with. I encourage you to give Sherry Arsenault a follow as well, a remarkable uh, woman. I've got some thoughts on this and i'm sure you do too we're going to get to our hashtag real talk rj in just a moment but we want to say thank you uh, to the team at clean air club this is uh, a a group that we partnered with right when sam and i opened up this studio and we knew that we wanted to make sure that especially in a pandemic era that we were doing everything we could to make sure that our air was clean so they got us this really great air purification unit in here but their bread and butter is furnace filters they're a local company Sam's showing you our awesome air filter. And by the way, it's running right now. You can't even hear it. 
so that thing is perfect for any space. But but what I want you to think about today is if you're watching or listening from home, when's the last time you changed your furnace filter? I mean, do you even know? Do you even remember? I pulled mine out like two weeks ago and went, oh, wow. And it's because, not I'm lazy, it's because I have a hard time keeping on track of things, uh, keeping on top of all of my obligations. Like Clean Air Club, they're doing exactly that for you. So you let them know how often you want them changed out. It's a one-time thing at cleanairclub.ca. You tell them the size, frequency. They drop them off for you, they supply them for you, and they give you a little gift to support another local business. Furnace filters uh, really creep up on you. Like they, every time I every time I go to change mine, it's caked, especially since I got a dog. It's yes. just like, oh my god, is I it know, disgusting. Yeah. right? It's one of those and, and you just it's not that you're lazy. It's just you kind of go, oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's very, very easy to forget about. Yeah, no kidding. Like changing your oil, right? Same sort of a thing. Also, a shout out to Westworld Computers for more than 40 years. Family owned in Western Canada, Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary. Your Mac store independently owned. There's that big store that has that big Apple logo. You know the one I'm talking about. But are you They're not locally owned? This, this, this family's been in business for 40 years. Daryl and his team, and they want your business Next time you're in the market, whether it's a phone or a, a big sort of a creative studio that you're looking to open or somewhere in between, show up at Westworld and let them know that you're a fan of Real Talk and you appreciate their sponsorship. So Sherry Arsenault with a, a, a pretty, uh, obviously a firsthand and very moving uh, perspective on drunk driving legislation in Alberta, December 1st, yesterday, changes went into effect. Uh, Sam, one of the things I think that, you know, that sort of uh, really jumps out at me is we talk about a first offense in drunk driving and how how a first-time offense, people will stay out of the courts and essentially, you know, be dealt with on the spot by a police officer that can issue that $1,000 fine, suspend their, you know, take their car for 30 days. Um, You know, can we all agree that the first time that somebody's busted for impaired driving is never that person's first time drunk driving. Can we all agree on that? I mean, that. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't have my mic on there. Um, yeah. It, it, like the thing is, and I mean, I don't want to single out rural Alberta, but when you talk to people that grow up, you know, out in the country, jumping in the truck after a few beers and barreling down a dirt road, like that is normal. And that's a normal part of kind of that, I don't want to say redneck, but yeah, I'm going to say redneck life that, that people just sort of ascribe to here. So like, I agree with you. It, it, it's, it, it's a rock and a hard place because as a, as a person, as a person who loves people with lives, um, I want the toughest impaired driving legislation we can possibly have. But at the same time, we cannot be giving law enforcement officers the ability to be, you know, judge and jury on the spot. And that's what can, that's one of the things yeah. that really concerns me. That's one of the things that really concerns me. And I and I recognize the importance of, and and I tried to really sort of lay it out that there's an awareness here on my part, on this audience's part, people reflecting that awareness that our courts are backlogged and it's very problematic because in in some cases violent offenders are having their charges stayed because we can't get them in front of a judge soon enough. So we need to find a way to address that. Part of that is hiring more crown prosecutors. Part of that is maybe building more courthouses. I don't know with what money. Well, um, I mean that's just it too. Is like our courts are very, you know, it's not something that people think about a lot, but I'm seeing this come up a lot. And actually, on our on our uh, on our YouTube chat today, is there's you know there's a real underfunding of our court system, and the yeah. infrastructure is is old and is crumbling, and, and it doesn't serve this province properly anymore. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm t- taking a look at the, the YouTube comments right now. Like Judy says, yeah, there's, you know, zero tolerance. You need to have zero tolerance. Mark says Japan has very severe drunk driving laws, uh, very low incidence there of, of drunk driving. Um, you know, others are, geez, I mean, and this is not a, this is not wrong. Judy's not wrong here who says, you know, a, you know, a drunk driver, uh, is now the premier of Saskatchewan. I mean, you know, I think back to BC, Gordon Campbell, the premier there got busted for DUI in, in, in Maui, right. Uh, in Hawaii, at least, um, you know, there are, and how do you reconcile this? Like, I don't, like I said, and I just want to, let me just look into the camera and say, I understand that it's when you have a conversation like this and, and you want to have a nuanced conversation and you want to approach it from different angles and have a meaningful debate on it. It's possible that this comes across that, that you're condoning drunk driving or you're looking out for the drunk drivers and not the families of the victims. Like, no, that's not the case. But, but can we also acknowledge that people have, you know, I, I mean, there are, there are prominent athletes, celebrities, everyday people, friends of mine, quite frankly, have been, have been charged, convicted, pleaded guilty uh, to driving impaired um, and, and have, have, have paid their debt to society and have gone on to live productive lives. And boy, how do you find the balance? I mean, I'm not talking about a drunk driver that rear ends three young men at 200 kilometers an hour without hitting the brakes and kills them. And just, I'm not talking about that. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, life in prison sounds to me to be pretty appropriate in that circumstance. I mean, that's how I feel about that. But somebody that has, you know, makes a mistake sure blows over when they didn't expect to they had a couple of glasses of wine on an empty stomach they hit a check stop in the holidays and then all of a sudden uh you know their entire life has collapsed um how do you reconcile that i mean i recognize it's not always a popular question to ask but i think it's an important question to ask and i'm not sure that everybody would argue or believe that someone that made the uh selfish and terrible decision to drive impaired uh should have in a circumstance where they've not taken a life in the circumstance where they've not injured someone uh, or endangered the life of a child in the vehicle, for example, that that person should have their entire life destroyed. I mean, can we participate in this conversation? I mean, can we, can we have this conversation as a society without coming across as though we're sympathetic to impaired drivers? I, I mean, playing the other side of this, you know, if you, if you are caught, blowing over the limit and and thank god you were caught at a check stop you didn't kill anybody getting a stiff fine and having your car impounded and losing your license for a while you should consider yourself lucky you know what i mean nobody died and you got off a little bit less financially wealthy and eventually your life is going to get back together I, i think that there's you know vehicular homicide where people actually kill people with impaired driving is is a very very serious offense but like getting behind the wheel having had any alcohol in the first place is it's such a preventable problem like i mean that you know the thing to me is that there is always a choice to do that i agree um i want to get some of these comments uh i can't tell you how liberating this is to be able to just go as long as we want because the conversation is continuing on our live stream on youtube it's continuing on twitter uh donna's watching in and she says my heart breaks for sherry arsenault thank you for sharing her story with us today especially says donna when we hear that during this pandemic drinking and drug use is skyrocketing Uh, donna's absolutely right about that 
She says, Sherry, we mourn with you and we thank you for enlightening us on this issue. A really thoughtful comment from Donna there. Uh, Crazy James is listening in. You got to follow this guy on Twitter, by the way. Crazy James AB. He's not crazy. He's hilarious. Um, He says, you know, regarding drunk driving, um, he says it's, you know, it's funny. Sherry says that, you know, it it happens in Quebec. He says, here's my idea. Uh, First off, if there are no injuries or damages, uh, you automatically lose your license for a year. No questions asked. Second off, uh, if if there is injury or death, you lose your license forever. No questions asked, uh, says Crazy James. Driving is a privilege, not a right. Um, I mean, yeah. you know, the, the, the whole thing, no questions asked. I don't like I don't you know, I don't necessarily support. Again, I, I'm going to open up a huge can of worms. Uh, one of the things I think that the Harper government was criticized for in the whole tough on crime mandate was mandatory minimums. And if you talk to people, uh, you know, with careers in law, with insight in law, they'll say that mandatory minimums aren't necessarily effective. I'm not I don't know. I mean, I think that the whole sort of like automatic this is uh is something you'd have to sell to the general population, but also I think you can make a strong argument for it. Um, on the Twitter, th- uh, co- the live comment stream, um, you know, for example, right now, and, and and we're seeing personal stories of loss. Like, I mean, this is what a punch in the gut to hear from from Gordon, who's watching today. He says, my sister was killed. How horrible is this? My sister was killed by a drunk driver a day after my other sister's wedding. Uh, he was handed a $75 fine for distracted driving. She was 20 years old and engaged i'm sorry for your loss gordon blaine says it's a perversion of justice not just to the victims of a given crime but to the accused as well that our fundamental right to a speedy trial is being eroded blaine i agree with you 100 on that uh lauren corbett who i uh know personally and lauren it's great that you're watching lauren is a, a former uh, district chief with edmonton fire rescue uh you want some perspective on the impact of drunk driving on a community talk to paramedics and firefighters talk to police officers uh, that are on scene talk to volunteer firefighters here's another angle we'll talk to volunteer firefighters as this show goes on and and we're able to log more shows and pursue more story angles volunteer firefighters oftentimes see um, and, and you don't know, try to rank them uh, in, in 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 you know in, in a ranking of the most horrific crashes but but these are typically volunteer firefighters from rural communities operating with minimal supports and and oftentimes seeing the worst highway speed crashes you talk to them about drunk driving and you'll get a very clear understanding of what it's like anyway back to lauren a former uh, retired firefighter uh says keep in mind fines are punitive only to those that can't afford them which is huge i remember hearing about timu solani Uh, i'm a big timu fan uh it wasn't drunk driving it was just it was just uh, uh, driving at excessive speed in his native country of finland this was several years ago uh off the top of my head i don't have it in front of me but finland ties your uh, speeding for your traffic fines to your income or to your net worth and so timu's fine for speeding was something like 80 or 90 grand um i don't mind that idea either that's an interesting one you'd have to crunch some numbers but but the big earners i mean for a lot of people i mean it sounds crazy to us everyday folks but to a lot of people even a ten thousand dollar fine is like that's like a line item in a but that's like a that's like they'll write off ten thousand that's like their spill tab Put it that way for a lot of people, I think. I mean, you, you, that's kind of an interesting idea. Yeah. Um, 
especially in the case of, of like speeding with photo radar is that, you know, because there's no demerits, because there's no consequences, if you're, if you're rich and you like to drive fast, it's just another bill you have to pay. You know what I mean? And I love the idea of bracketing to income. And, and, and you know, by the way, earlier I was, you know, I, I don't ever want to move into like a no questions asked scenario. I, I think you, you hit it on the head when you read that comment that said, giving everybody a right to a speedy trial is often what solves this problem because if we can get people expediently in front of a court you know there's a very difference very big difference between being caught impaired and being convicted of impaired and i think that yeah. we need more resources to let that court process play out quickly way easier said than done though right oh, absolutely. To, to say oh all we need is expedient court process i mean yeah um katrina making an amazing point on our on our live chat here on youtube we, do you want to just sit here all day and facilitate the youtube chat katrina says this makes me think about the lack of safe and accessible public transport options in canada uh, people really rely on cars here compared to places uh like the uk she says um that that's an that's a fantastic point i mean i don't have any if, if you want to get blackout wasted uh and then and then you're gonna hop on an lrt and not bug anybody and get home safely that's that's your call i mean that brings into you know play other issues and other conversations we can have uh around substance use but but if you but to me uh, a healthy public transit option uh, the availability of ride sharing uh, a walkability of a city uh proper uh, no i shouldn't say cycling infrastructure because I, I think you you can actually get a dui on a bike you, you can you? yes yeah so yeah. so maybe i won't say proper cycling you're technically operating a vehicle on a bicycle blows my mind by the way that these yeah. li the lime scooters and everything are, are still are not like shut down at three in the morning i've seen some people going like whoa uh maybe a breathalyzer built into the lime scooter i don't know yeah the funny thing and, and having lived in other cities and having traveled to other cities like when i lived in toronto and the bars closed at 2 a.m and i took the bus home that was i mean first of all it was routinely the most hilarious bus ride you'd be on because you see all sorts of characters on it but it's a system that works getting people a reliable like i think a very very, very big part of it and why this is a, a conversation that, that resonates more in Alberta than it does even in other parts of the country is that we're such a car-centric place. You know, we've tied our cars to our identity here in Edmonton and we feel the need that we drive everywhere and show off the wheels that we have. And, and you know, that's that's great. I like my car. I like driving. Um, I like cycling. I like walking. I take transit often when I go out for an evening, you know, when we can go out for an evening. And and it's just, I, I think that culturally we need to change it so that if you're going to go out for a night where you could be impaired, it should just not even be a question whether you drive or not. That's Sam Brooks, uh, the intrepid senior producer of this show. Uh, before we go, uh, I want to give a shout out to our friends at uh, Dairy Queens uh, in Sherwood Park in Northwest Edmonton. The ownership group there, it's uh, two local guys, uh, Michael and Mark, and they own six Dairy Queens. Can you imagine owning a Dairy Queen? I'm thinking like that would be dangerous. It would be, and and I know these guys. I'd, like, I'd weigh 300 pounds, and minimum. you'd be you'd be finding blizzard toppings falling out of my bag every my, time I walked my, home. My my left leg would weigh 300 pounds. Uh, I would I would have I would have a, a a bib. I would have to wear a bib that would just catch my blizzard spill off. If I wanted to just take in something light, I would just have a light lunch of dilly bars. If I owned the Dairy Queens, but I don't own them. Uh, I just proudly partner with them. Uh, these guys are all about a community connection, whether it's obviously investing their money here, 
uh, in these locations, whether it's hiring and employing local people or whether it's doing an amazing job of supporting local charities. I implore you, if you're going to be hitting a drive through today or ordering from your favorite delivery service to do it, uh, to order, to pick up from Dairy Queens in Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, and we appreciate their partnership. I am so excited for tomorrow's show. I'm going to say right now, the two people joining us on tomorrow's show were the two highest profile Canadians in the world last week. Both of them. They're both going to be on the show tomorrow. And you're going to see it only on Real Talk. Have an amazing Wednesday, friends. We'll talk to you soon.